Welcome to the NFL 100 podcast from Gridiron, a look back at the biggest moments and the most legendary rivalries in NFL history, uh, speaking with Hall of Famers and those who lived through them. This week, and it probably shouldn't have taken us until week eight to cover this one, we're going all the way back to Super Bowl one. We'll be hearing from Clark Hunt, Smokey Stover, Mickey Hertzowitz, Bobby Bell, Dave Robinson and Boyd Dowler. A veritable feast of big names. You're listening to the NFL 100 Show from Gridiron. Will Gavin, I've got Matt Sherry with me as well, my favourite NFL historian. Hey buddy, how you doing? Hey. Yeah, I'm good man. I'm really good. Um... Just, I'm so close to finishing the, the book, which is obviously the reason we're doing this podcast series. Um, so yeah, I'm very, Thanksgiving need to have it finished by, and I'm on course, which is nice. Nice, nice. Well, I'm pleased that you're getting that close, and I mean, it sounds like it's going to be, based on what you were telling me the other day, uh, uh, cutting down rather than bulking up, which is always, I think, the easiest way to edit anything. So, uh, good work, buddy. Yeah, nearly there, man. And hopefully not cutting down too much from speaking to the publishers. They're quite happy for it to be chunky. So should be all right. Wonderful stuff. Well, coming up on this show today, we are going to be talking about Super Bowl One, the Green Bay Packers' victory over the Kansas City Chiefs. But not just talking about... Super Bowl one, talking about how the merger came about in the first place, how the AFL and NFL ended up being the two leagues that put on this first competition and how that eventually became the overall NFL. I was speaking uh, with a friend. I was speaking with my wife the other day, Matt Sherry, and uh, she had like her phone up in front of her. And there was obviously she was looking at something that had like an on this day thing. And uh, I think it was three days ago that the. Uh, it got passed through Congress. The official merger was done. And yeah. so it's this week that that happened. And so it's the perfect week to be talking about this story. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, it, it just all fits like a glove, doesn't it? Oh, what a man you are. Um, right. So let's uh, let's first of all talk about how the Super Bowl itself was kind of a byproduct of the most successful league to rival the NFL. But it wasn't yeah. the only one, was it? No, it wasn't. Um, you know, as as the NFL, I mean, basically from the start, there were rivals. Um, the The biggest event I would say in the NFL's first decade was the 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 Red Grange Tour, which is you know this famous guy from the University of Illinois leaves college football and takes the the unprecedented step for it for a guy that famous to to join the professional ranks. He. Um, he basically leaves college and then immediately starts this barnstorming tour around the US with the Chicago Bears who, you know, were hastily arranging games for it because in those days there was no schedule, you know, that the, the, the teams kind of made it, it was the went along and, and Grange netted himself uh, about, I think it was about $1.5 million for in, in a month um, in modern day money. Um, and, and he was the biggest star in football and, and what happened was after that season, you know, there was a discussion to be had about whether Grange was going to sign for the Bears permanently or not. And, and you know, Grange, because of his pulling power, wanted a slice of the ownership pie and things like that. And then separate to that, wanted to just set up his own team in New York, which was prohibited because the, the Giants owned the, the territorial rights. So, so we end up in a scenario where most of the NFL actually wants to give in and let Grange have his own team in New York. But because... Um, 
Tim Mara, the owner of the Giants, has the the rights. He refuses. And Grange eventually just sets up a rival league, thinking that as the biggest star, he will he will be successful, and it's called the American Football League, and that that becomes really the first iteration of of a league that we see multiple versions of over the ensuing years. It doesn't work at all. I mean, it's disastrous, really. Um, lasts a season, and the NFL. I think that it was big for the NFL that it was so quickly able to see off the challenge, and it, and the NFL grows in confidence from that. In, on a previous episode, we've referenced how you know they culled a load of teams in the late nineteen twenties. The reason for that is that in response to the Grange League, they invited a load of extra teams in, and then after the after the the Grange League disbands and and comes back into the NFL fold, Grange does. There, there's a load of deadwood teams, so they cut a load. So it's big for the NFL in that sense. And then we see, you know, two other versions of the AFL in 1936 and 1940. Um, neither of these were successful either. I mean, they both only lasted a season. I would say the biggest legacy is um, the first version of the Cleveland Rams is in the 1936 uh, league, and they become the Los Angeles Rams eventually, as they are today. But the, their journey was 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 mentioned previously on the pod as well. And in 1940, the 1940 version uh, had the original Cincinnati Bengals. Now, the the Bengals that we know today is a different team entirely, but they, they did have, they, they basically they had the same name, um, and and that's I, I don't know if people know that the Bengals are quite. I, well, I was going to say, is that not have they done like a Cleveland Browns where they went out of existence, re-existed, but then absorbed officially the history of that other team? Or no, not really. No, I mean it's just it's a totally different setup. You know, the Paul Brown was not involved in pro football at this point. I mean, he's probably a kid in nineteen forty. Thinking about no, he'd have been he'd have been coaching in nineteen forty, but he wasn't involved in that Cleveland in that Cincinnati Bengals team. I mean, the reason they're called the Bengals is because Cincinnati Zoo famously had a Bengal tiger. I mean, that's so that's the, the, the link to the Bengals. Um, so, yeah, it's not really. It's just the, the, the same name, I guess. And, and I would assume that it was informed by somebody pointing out that that was a name of a pro team in Cincinnati previously, but there isn't any any link between between the clubs. Um, and then in, in 1946, we get the second most impressive rival to the to the AFL uh, to the NFL sorry and that's the AAFC which is the All-American Football Conference now this this is a lot more successful um you know the Cleveland Browns become the best team in pro football under Paul Brown immediately you know Otto Graham Marion Motley all these great hall of fame players they win the AAFC every year and and then you know it eventually reaches the point where they merge with the NFL in name. It's not really a true merger in the way that the, the subsequent one with the AFL is. You know, essentially the NFL just absorbs three of their teams, and and the three teams who still exist today, the the, the Browns, the the Baltimore Colts, and the and the San Francisco Forty Nine is obviously Baltimore Colts are now the Indianapolis Colts. Um, so that was probably the most successful league to rival it, and and was given real. Um, Real pedigree by the fact that the Browns in the in the first game of their first season in the NFL annihilated the 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 Philadelphia Eagles, who were the NFL mm. champion at the time. The only thing I will say on these podcasts is I apologise if we're saying things that we've mentioned on other shows, but <laughs> the idea is that people can listen to this whole pod and it'll tell the whole story, and we'll try not to do that wherever we can. But yeah, never so that, apologise, Matthew. Never apologise. Yeah, but that's basically it, and then. It, you know, for 10 years, there's this golden period of NFL football until 
you know, 1960 when when another arrival comes along in, in the American Football League Part 4, I guess you would call it. But again, there is no links between Part 4, 3, 2 and 1. They're all individual entities called the American Football League. So why was the the eventual AFL, the one that did form with the NFL, the one that was able to succeed where others had failed? Um, I, I guess the same reason the the AFC did. Um, the difference between those and, and, and the other rival leagues that failed spectacularly is that both of them featured owners who were very rich. They were essentially owners who'd been rejected to buy NFL teams. So took matters into their own hands and set up rival leagues. In, in the AFL, there were three in particular. Um, Bud Adams of the Houston Oilers, uh, Ralph Wilson of the Buffalo Bills, and Lamar Hunt of the Dallas Texans slash Kansas City Chiefs. Now, of those three, Hunt is easily the most important because he was the one who set it all up. Um, but but a, a lot of them took on his spirit as well. You know, they, they were they were in it for the battle. They were in it for the long haul. I've mentioned previously they jokingly referred to themselves as the foolish club when they assessed the losses that were created um, in the early years. So so let's hear from Clark Hunt, um, Lamar's son, and, and just he tells the, the, the background story of, of how um, Lamar came to be interested in, in owning a pro football team and, and, and gives us a little bit of a, a potted history of, of the AFL from, from his dad's perspective. First of all, it goes to him being an avid enthusiast as a player uh, growing up. Uh, he played both uh, baseball and American football growing up um, and loved them both. And uh, uh, he tried to play uh, in college at SMU. Um, beyond his freshman year, though, he didn't play much. They had a freshman team back in those days, and he did play on that. Uh, but once he was on the varsity, he had some players in front of him that really prevented him from getting on the field. But he loved it so much that he stuck out the four-year commitment um, to just you know being part of the team. Um, it, from his earliest days, um, he was always fascinated by games. In fact, that was his nickname uh, growing up because he was always creating games for his family and friends to play. And um, as he moved into uh, you know the the working world after college, um, at first he spent time uh, in his family's oil and gas business. But after a few years, he just realized that was really not a fit for him. That was not where his passion wide and uh, he decided that he wanted to own a professional sports team and he debated between baseball and football for some period of time um, but he happened to watch the 1958 he watched the 1958 NFL championship game between the Colts and the Giants uh, which was one of the greatest games that had ever been played up to that point and he and uh, TV was brand new at that point. So this is the late 50s. TV hadn't been around long. Of course, it was black and white back in those days. But he thought that the game televised well. It was very appealing to watch on TV. And that really convinced him that he wanted to own a pro football team as opposed to a major league baseball team. <clears throat> so that was the, the avenue that he then pursued over the next two years. Yeah, and is, is it true that Raymond Berry was a college roommate of his? Because I've, I've read that at times, and, and and it strikes me as something that could easily have been kind of a, an old wives' tale, as we would say in the UK. But is that true? 
Yeah, um, so I don't know if they were roommates, but they were teammates. And in fact, it was Raymond Berry who played my dad's position yeah. and prevented my dad from getting on the field. Okay. Um, and they, they were they were friends uh, on on the team and really remained friends throughout their lives. But yeah, it was Raymond who prevented my dad from getting to play. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, obviously, then we get into the process of initially looking at buying an NFL team, not being able to, and then this 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 creation of the AFL. I mean, you know. How did you? How did your dad look back on those those earliest days in the AFL? I spoke to a linebacker called Smokey Stover, um, who told me an amazing story about a flight out of a training camp where literally the the there were worries that the plane wasn't going to get off the ground. It was kind of you know they they set this thing up and it was it was kind of they called themselves the foolish club, these dreamers who decided, yep, we're going to go and start our own league and and try and compete. Right. Well, uh, obviously, my conversations with my dad on that were, you know, 20 plus years uh, after the league had been founded. Yeah. Um, and at that point, he was looking back, you know, very with very fond memories, but also a full appreciation for how difficult it was. And uh, if you were to talk to my mother today, uh, who was around in those early years, she remembers how bitter the battle was between the NFL and the AFL and how precarious the AFL was for much of its first five or six years in business. Uh, because after the league got going, um, the NFL initially acted like um, they were happy about it. And, and they acted that way because they were under antitrust investigation by Congress. Yeah. And so it was good for them to have a competing league. But the truth was uh, they wanted to put it out of business as quickly as possible, which is how the Dallas Cowboys came into existence. My dad's team was the Dallas Texans. Uh, my dad had always wanted to start a team in his hometown, and that's what he did. And the NFL, after it changed its perspective, decided to put a team right in top on top of my dad's team. Uh, both teams played in the Cotton Bowl, and, and they drew less than 10,000 fans, both teams, um, which you know, today is, is amazing uh, to think about. Um, but, but the NFL was trying to put it out of business, and then that turned into a battle for players. So both leagues were trying to sign the same players, which can call, cause a lot of inflation with the, the salaries. Um, and you know, that, that battle went on for four or five years. And uh, finally, the AFL uh, signed a new TV deal. Um, in uh, 1966, and the new TV deal paid them a lot more money. Um, and when that happened, the NFL realized that the AFL was not going away, and that's when they tasked uh, um, one of their representatives to contact my dad about a merger of the leagues. Clark Hunt, obviously now very prominently owner of the Kansas City Chiefs, or a member of the ownership group of the Kansas City Chiefs, but talking to us about Lamar Hunt, about uh, the AFL. I mean, we obviously heard a good amount from Clark there, but but tell us a little bit about the AFL, Matt. Yeah, I think there's two elements of the story that are, that are interesting outside of the you know the battle for players that 
that Clark mentions. And and the first is that the AFL itself was was huge for the for the schematics of football. You know, it was a wide open game. It's very different game to the NFL. It was just a lot more entertaining. You know, those Lombardi Packers teams that were so successful in the sixties sum up what the NFL was at that time, which was this kind of ground and pound main defense. You know, tough, hard men um, football. Whereas the AFL was a lot a lot closer to what we see today. And I guess exemplified really by the, the 1963 um, San Diego Chargers team that was that was coached by Sid Gilman, who I mentioned last week as one of the most significant figures in in the schematics of football history. You know, they had John Haddle, Tobin Road throwing passes down the field to to Lance Allworth, who I guess is one of the top five greatest receivers in the history of professional football, and and, and they were a great team, and and this. This kind of entertaining brand of football shows itself in the fact that, you know, it was the fan base was was pretty good early. I mean, in 1962, 56 million people watched the the championship game between the Oilers and the Texans, which was the Oilers attempting a three peat and and being thwarted by by Dallas. Um, mm. But it is offset by some some shambles. You know, there's there's. The games are played in stadiums that are completely ill-fitting. I mean, um, when Red Grange came out in 1925, his most famous game was at the Polo Grounds, and they were still playing on that 40 years later. I mean, that was one of the the bad stadiums. You know, the the, the Jets, original Jets owner, lost so much money that he often refused to put the floodlights on, so games were played in in near darkness. Um, There was a game, actually, that... The, uh, involving uh, it was the Texans against the Boston Patriots and, and and the Texans were driving down for a game tie and score and uh, the ball gets knocked down in the end zone and when they launched back the film it was a fan in the end zone who knocked it down <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah there's some amazing stories but let's let's hear the, from the, the original 12th man forget you Texas yes, absolutely. You, Seattle that was the first 12th man for me <laughs> Yeah, it's so good, man. But uh, so let's to get an insight into that. Let's hear from somebody who listeners won't know. There was a, a linebacker for the Chiefs called uh, Smokey Stover, who was around from the early part of the AFL, um, and he was introduced to me by Michael McCambridge. Who, if you want to read a book before mine, then read his uh, book, America's Game. He's a good friend of mine. It's one of the best books I've ever read, and he put me in touch with Smokey, who was like this guy who ended up in the AFL on the back of a trial out and 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 tells us a little bit about the early years of the AFL and then on Michael's suggestion tells us a story about this this flight that was referenced to to Clark Hunt out of the training camp and, and really shows the the ramshackle nature of the early AFL. They when they started the league, I mean nobody really knew anything about it. Uh, uh, all the owners uh, they got got together and pulled out their billfold. And by, this was in 1960. Yeah. Uh, when they were doing a started league, and uh, I was very fortunate. Uh, that was what they called just. Uh, uh, they just called me. One of the guys knew one of the coaches, and they called me and wanted to know if I wanted to try out. And that's how I got started. Uh, I went to a tryout camp where there was about. Uh, Oh gosh, I guess there was a plus, you know, 80, 90 guys that showed up. And when they got through with us about uh, 10 days later, there was only about uh, 15 of us left. 
Absolutely. I mean, it must have been nice to be one of the 15. <laughs> oh, I know, and i tell you what, I, yeah, especially when, you know, I mean, you work your rear end off and, you know, try to make it. It was, it was an experience, I tell you. Uh, met a lot of good people and good coaches and everything. And, uh, you know, I was real proud to uh, be able to play for the Chiefs, you know, that many years. Just, just before, I, I'm going to move on to Kansas City and the Super Bowl and things, but before I do, Michael has told me I need to ask you the story of the flight out of training camp in New Mexico in 1960. <laughs> so I'll, I'll let you tell that. Cause he's given me no other details. <laughs> well, i tell you what, that was a trip. In fact, I get goosebumps when I think about it. Uh, we had... Uh, we, when we left training camp out of Roswell, New Mexico, thank God that the runway was out in the desert and it went, everywhere. it went for miles. When we, took, when we got everybody loaded, I mean, we were sitting on top of each other, we had all of our equipment, and when he took the, the, the pilot, I mean, he was, he was really up in the air about it, and, and uh, the pilot, I mean, uh, our general manager, uh, I forget his name right now, but he went up into the cockpit and he said, take it, take it, you know, take off, let's go. We don't have time to waste. And sure enough, boy, when we got on that runway and we went and we went and we went and it finally lifted off the ground and once it did that, we, I mean, the pilot, after he got up in the air, he had come out of his cockpit. He was sopping wet with sweat. He said that he would never, ever do that again. And it was, uh, you could tell he was quite shaken up about that takeoff. Where we had, a, it was, we were way overloaded. We should have even tried to do it. But they, they want to save uh, money, so they said they did two planes. We took one. And we made it. I, I tell you. That's, that's been a, always a story when we all get together. Some of us old timers say, do you, do you remember that? And uh, I tell you what, we all remember it once it made it. Smokey Stove uh, speaking there. That's a great story about the, uh, uh, well, you said about the kind of shambolic nature of the AFL, but considering there was so like the question I asked you before was like how were they able to succeed where others failed and we talked about yeah, how important those owners were but it feels like a bit of a survival story yeah it is and you know the survival is built on, on a, I guess a few factors you know Gilbrand in a previous episode told us about the, the, the clandestine nature of trying to procure talent and the battle between the leagues and 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 the big thing for the AFL was the one a lot of those battles I mean you know famously in, in before their first ever season they managed to get Billy Cannon the, the Heisman winning running back to the Oilers um, he was meant to be signing for the Rams who at the time incidentally was meant to be signed by Pete Rizal, who was the Rams' general manager. And what happened is, um, I mean, Bud Adams doubled it, the offer that the Rams offered. And, and what they did is, after the after his final college game, the AFL signed him under the goalpost. It was a big PR win 
for the Oilers and um, and that was really set the tone for the battle that continued on you know eventually we see Joe Namath the great Alabama quarterback signed for for the New York Jets and 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 that procurement of these star players from college was important you know it immediately legitimizes it it improves the quality of the game because they're signing really good players and, and I guess the second part is something that was mentioned last week which was um you know, signing the big TV deal, um, that was huge. It was Sonny Werblin, the Jets' second owner, who who was instrumental in making that happen. And, and that's when I think the NFL realises it has to take the AFL more seriously. And it it's no coincidence that not long off the back of that, they, they, they go for Al Davis as commissioner, which is something else that was, was referenced last week. And and, and you know, Davis is significant in the, in the merger of these two leagues because... After the Giants signed Pete, Pete Gogolak, who was the Bills kicker, which, which really broke an unwritten rule that the leagues wouldn't sign each other's players. You know, they would battle for draft picks, but not take players off other squads. Well, the NFL signed him to a futures contract, or the Giants did. So Davis responds by saying to AFL teams, right, well, go and do the same thing. And within a matter of days, you know, the likes of Mike Dicker have signed futures contracts with the AFL. And, and it, it, it really is, I think, you know, it, the NFL realises then that this battle is going in a direction it, it really doesn't want. But let's say we, we spoke we spoke to Mickey, or you did, Will, Mickey Herskovitz, who was, was Davis's PR man, hand-picked PR man. So let's let's hear from him just a little bit about his role in the AFL and, and, and a little bit on Al Davis as, as the commissioner as well. You know, it's really funny, Will. Um, I was uh, uh, the youngest sports editor in America with the Houston Post uh, about... 28 years old, 29 years old, and um, uh, I had met and covered Al uh, at the very early stages of his career. When we met, he was an assistant coach with Sid Gilman in San Diego, and I came to U- to San Diego with a ball- baseball team, the Houston baseball team, which is now playing in the World Series against the Washington Nationals, having a rough first two games. But anyway, they played an exhibition game in San Diego, and a pitcher on the ball club named Don McMahon, who had been had a great career with the Milwaukee Braves, uh, had come to Houston toward the end of his career, Don McMahon. We were pretty friendly, and he had gone to high school with Al Davis in Brooklyn. And after the game, I got out of the press box after writing my story and just kind of coincidentally uh, intersected Don McMahon and Al Davis and a couple other coaches on the San Diego football staff coming out of the uh, stands, and uh, they'd been visiting after the game, and they were waiting for Don to change clothes. So we were, the timing was right, and McMahon introduced me to Al, and he just sort of stood out. And I started following him, and over the years I had a chance to write about him a little bit, and uh, uh, he was named commissioner of the American Football League at a winter league meeting in Houston, and called me at my office and offered me a job. And um, I don't know how far I should go with the story, but it's kind of funny. Um, it caught me completely off guard. But as young as I was, I knew that the Houston Post, my newspaper, was owned by the Hobby family. Mrs. Ovita Culp Hobby had been on the staff of Dwight Eisenhower during World War II and was the wife of a former governor. And um, I knew, and, and her son, Bill Hobby, was going to be a lieutenant governor of Texas and eventually would take over the paper. So I knew it was going to be a family operation. I knew that I could be there another 30 years and still be the sports editor. So to my surprise, I was 
interested in listening to Al's offer. And I told him I had to talk it over with my wife, and would he give me a call in a day or two? And he said, I'll call you Tuesday at 7 o'clock and have an answer ready. So I waited for the call in the library at the Houston Post. It was closed around 6, and so I had privacy there. And the call came in right on the dot, and I said, Al, I'm coming with you. <laughs> there was a long pause on the line. And now suddenly it's like he's having buyer's remorse. And I'll never forget, the next thing he said to me was, Mickey, can you name the offensive line of the Denver Broncos? And I said, Al, can anybody? I said, give me a minute. I can go to my desk and get a brochure and read it to you. But no, I don't know the offensive line of the Denver Broncos. I don't know the offensive line of the Oakland Raiders. Yeah, he's he is he's a divisive character. It's fair to say from his time in the yeah. league, and but but he, equally, you know, we've just had the the Oakland Raiders over uh, here in London a couple of weeks ago for the first game of the season, and you know we had uh, guys like George Atkinson and Jim Plunkett and guys who were you know part of those great Raiders teams of the sixties and seventies, and as, as much as he could be divisive, particularly in his later years, it's fair to say people who knew him and worked for him would go to bat for him. Oh, yeah. He inspired a great deal of loyalty. And um, this is a pretty behind-the-scenes story, but I, you might enjoy it. Uh, uh, in his short and stormy tenure, uh, Davis convinced the AFL owners, and they were the kind of selfish and independent bunch that owners usually are, that they needed a group attitude, uh, a plan and and a touch of class to take on the NFL. But above all, they needed lots of nickels and a will to survive. <laughs> um, and Al, you know, who was a lifelong football guy, uh, regarded the AFL not as a job, but really as a cause. I, I remember our offices were on Madison Avenue, which was the heart of the media area in New York. We were on the East 50s, just around the corner from a linen shop where I once saw the actress Hedy Lamar looking in the window. <laughs> and that could have happened to you in New York. Anyway, um, uh, Davis had been hired, he thought, to fight the NFL. And then he wasn't consulted when they made the deal, Lamar Hunt and Tech Schramm of the Dallas Cowboys, Lamar Hunt, the owner of the Kansas City Chiefs, Dallas Texans, and the original founder of the league, along with Bud Adams of Houston. Anyway, uh, Hunt and Ralph Wilson, Sonny Werblin, uh, who won the New York Jets, but was in the hospital after surgery, and uh, I think Billy Sullivan, the owner of the Boston Pagers, were the owner's committee for the league AFL to, to meet with the owners of the NFL and work out the terms. And I, my office, the walls were fairly thin. That's why I was talking about Madison Avenue. Those, a lot of those buildings were built to be condemned at a certain point and rebuilt. So the walls were thin. And I could pretty much, if I paid close attention, I could hear whatever was going on in Al's office. And they had Werblin on the line at the hospital and Ralph Wilson was upset and I remember him saying to Davis that Werblin had told him that Davis said uh, had called him a bastard and said he lied to him and Wilson demanded an apology and Al said calm down Ralph I didn't say that I said all you bastards lied to me <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Fantastic. Vodafone 5G will have the power to change your world. From driverless cars to virtual reality and real-time gaming. That's why we're rolling out 5G across the UK. Discover Vodafone 5G on the UK's best mobile data network. The future's exciting. Ready? Vodafone. NPERF testing awarded Vodafone Best 2019 Mobile Internet Performance based on 35,664 tests on the NPERF app in UK. Coverage may vary. Visit vodafone.co.uk. Hazel Irvin here, and I'm at Mammoth Insurance in Leeds, where Kate has arranged an office chair race to fundraise for sport relief. And these riders have got their kit on. They are rearing to go. And they're off, taking an early lead and smashing injustice right out of the park. It's Daphne from Accounting, riding the spreadsheet demon chair. Up comes Nina from HR on Beat Me and You're Fired, closely followed by Mark from Marketing on the 9 to 5 chair. Even Javid from Health and Safety's at it, waving his clipboard like crazy. Go easy there, Javid. We don't want any injuries, fella. And from nowhere, it's Jenny on El Chero Loco, rolling right over poverty to cross the line first. And the crowd goes loco. Unbelievable. You can help change the world too. Just get your exclusive Sport Relief merchandise at Janeiro Sainsbury's. Sport Relief. It's game on. This message was brought to you by Acast. Mickey Herskovitz speaking to me. Uh, big F- AFLPR man worked alongside uh, Al Davis in those early days. So hearing about that, it won't be the, the, the last time we hear from Mickey uh, in this show, of course, Matt Sherry. But uh, uh, moving on from that then, Al Davis is the commissioner. You mentioned last week he was left out of the merger discussions. He was, yeah. I mean, they ultimately determined he, he would do more harm than good and, and may have been right on that. Um you know the merger discussions uh, sum up the era, really. You know, in the at the height of the Cold War, it was Kremlin-esque throughout this battle. Um, so these two, Tex Schramm and, and Lamar Hunt, ironically the two people who were battling for hearts and minds in in Dallas originally, um, Schramm with the Cowboys, Hunt with the with the Texans, made in a parking lot at Dallas Airport, and that's that's really the starting point of. Of, of the merger discussions that go on over a number of weeks. Pete Rosell was aware they were happening, unlike Al Davis, um, his counterpart. And and Davis actually would eventually claim that all of his actions, you know, the signing of the players, were, were done with the secret goal of of reaching a merger. And that's a that's a that's an idea that's been debated by historians, you know, throughout the history of, of these conversations. Well, let's hear from from an expert on that. Uh, Herskovitz can can talk to us about whether he really believes Al Davis, who he worked closely with, wanted the merger to happen at all. He didn't want it to happen. Uh, Al was hired, he believed, and was led to believe, to uh, prosecute the war. And um, he... uh, uh, he believed they could maybe not exactly win that battle, but they could force the NFL to, um, in effect, make concessions to the AFL in, in, in a matter of terms. And that they could, whatever they resolved, the AFL would have a, a leverage and would have a final say on what the terms were. And um, I remember... Uh, when they announced the um, the decision to merge, uh, the announcement included the fact that Roselle would be the commissioner of the combined leagues, and that 
Baltimore and Pittsburgh would come to the AFL to even out the number of teams, and the AFL would pay an $18 million indemnity to uh, the NFL for taking those two teams. And Al was furious, and I remember um, he was so unhappy with the merger terms, he quit in protest and was planning to return to Oakland as a managing partner of the Raiders. And uh, I remember him saying in his understated style that, that that's satirical, generals win the war and politicians lose the peace. You know, he, he came by my office. I actually had the office next to his. And he, it was the office of the, uh, the commissioner that he actually succeeded, although there was an interim commissioner named Milt Woodard who was the uh, controller or financial officer for the AFL. And Joe Foss had been the commissioner. He was governor of San, San, uh, South Dakota. And one of the uh, flying aces for the American, for the U.S. Air Force during World War II. And he had crashed during one of his flights and had a bad back, and he had a rocking chair in his office. And when he left left New York, he left the rocking chair in the office that I came to occupy. So people would come by my office just to rock in that chair, Well, And it was really funny. We didn't have to say anything. They would just come in, uh, like getting a massage or something, and then leave. So... Al is leaving the next day to go back to Oakland, and he came to each guy's office and dropped uh, uh, two sheets of paper on your desk, and it was a contract for two years. We didn't have, we, nobody had a contract when they came there. I was one of about six or seven guys he hired, and um, the one thing he did before he left was make sure everybody had a two-year contract, so if they wanted to leave or they had to leave, if there wasn't any opportunity for you, uh, you at least had the guarantee of a couple of years' salary. A very generous thing. It was very typical of Davis. Anyway, he had already done that, and now he stopped by my office, I guess, to say goodbye. And I had only been, I, I had been there, like I said, a long time, two weeks when the merger took place. And I still had, I had a clean desk. I had some papers there. I'd shift from one side of the desk to the other, make it look like I was busy. Anyway, Al came in, he popped himself down in that rocking chair and rocked for about a half a minute. And then I remember um, he, uh, uh, his voice was really kind of solemn. And he said, Mickey, I hope that someday, wherever you may be, wherever I happen to be, uh, you might find an occasion to say something nice about me. And I wouldn't say that a puddle formed in the corner of my eye, but I was touched, and I, I blurted out, Al, I'll never have a reason to say anything but nice things about you. And Davis, whose sense of humor can best be described as uncertain, um, threw back his head and roared, said, I was only kidding, and he slapped his knee. And I nodded and said, so was I. <laughs> But in truth, I always liked and respected Davis. Uh, Mickey Herskovitz, we will hear from him at least once more before the end of the show, and uh, you'll see exactly why coming up shortly. But the merger happened, announced via a press release June 8th, 1966, as we said earlier, ratified in uh, October of that year. What were the terms? Um, the terms were that, that all 22 teams would remain in their current locations and, and four more would be added in, in time that there'd be a common draft um, that Roselle would be the commissioner and that until the, they had the single league schedule which wouldn't come uh, for four years 
um, there will be two network TV coverage. So essentially these seasons continued on as they were, but the draft was bringing them together. And then the other thing that brought them together was was this end-of-year championship game between the victor of the AFL and the victor of the NFL. And, and Herskovitz was the man who was tasked with organising that game. And one thing that you've just mentioned, this wasn't ratified until October. The game had to be organised for January. So he had an awful lot of work to do. And, and let's hear from his perspective just, just how difficult that work was. When they finally uh, uh, cleared the way politically got government approved for the Super Bowl, got past the antitrust laws and so forth, uh, there was literally like 26 days to organize the first Super Bowl game. And, of course, everyone was sort of up in the air because it was brand new. But um, Pete Rozelle was a wonderful commissioner and terrifically organized and thorough and, and uh, very aware a guy who had started out in public relations. And um, to show that the, the leagues were going to be treated equally and fairly, Pete picked me to go out to Los Angeles as the second guy on the ground there. The first was Burt Rose, who had been the general manager of the Minnesota Vikings. He was in Los Angeles, but they hadn't heard from him for a couple of three days. Uh, Bert had set up his office in the bar of the Stadler Hilton Hotel, and he had a little bit of a drinking problem, and he just sort of disappeared. So Pete gave me a 22-page memorandum of things I had to do when I got to Los Angeles. And I did check into the Stadler Hilton Hotel. Uh, they gave me a three-bedroom suite with three bathrooms and television sets in every room. So I immediately called my wife and had her and my three little kids fly out to Los Angeles to fill up that suite. But um, I had to do things like uh, arrange the uh, uh, practice facilities for the teams, uh, hotels, uh, the uh, ticket prices, the tickets, get the tickets printed, uh, souvenirs, parties, uh, courtesy cars. Mickey, just uh, just to figure it, out the timing it, it, on this, Mickey. So it, yeah. we're on this week now, in fact, because we're speaking at the end of October. It was this week was the the anniversary of of actually when the AFL NFL merger was confirmed in the kind of mid late October. So you literally only had what from late October to to the end of January to organise all of this. Yeah, that's correct. Well, actually, the middle of January it was the fifteenth or sixteenth. The game was played. And um, I was out there, I guess it was December, and um, they treated me like I owned the league. But uh, <laughs> like I said, we, we set up a uh, hospitality room, uh, uh, a great story about the cars. Uh, I had to get 120 complimentary cars, courtesy cars, for the uh, coaches, owners, general managers, and the media, uh, print and broadcast. Um, oh, I ought to mention Roselle, when he gave me the 22-page memo, told me I had a $250,000 budget to spend on the media, on booze and cheese baskets, uh, cufflink sets, and um, uh, you know parties and flowers for their wives or dates. Anyway, uh, for $250,000, I could have bought an NBA team back in 1969 <laughs> with that kind of money, or 67. And... Um, uh, anyway, I, I, just because this sheds a little light on how the game was perceived, um, 
Pete told me that whatever I did for one team, I had to do for the other. It was Green Bay and Kansas City, the opponents in the first Super Bowl. Whatever I did for one network, I had to do for the other. And the networks were CBS for the NFL and ABC for, I'm sorry, NBC for the American Football League. And whatever I did for, you know, uh, the media uh, on one side or the other. And, you know, it's funny, we, we spend our whole careers wanting to be objective and independent. But when you get into a situation where some team you've covered for, in, the, in this case, seven years, is going up against the other league, uh, your, your, your emotions and loyalties come out. So anyway, uh, the, the key to, that Pete gave me was when, when, the, when the media left that game, he wanted them to say that it was bigger and better than the World Series. So the $250,000 budget was huge. I, I actually couldn't spend it. Uh, I had to spend a little bit on myself. So anyway. Um, <laughs> no one's blaming I, you for that, Mickey, at all. Yeah, I sent myself a lot of flowers and things. Anyway. Um, um, I, I, there was something else very interesting you, you mentioned, Mickey, when you were talking about setting up the game, is that both the leagues had to be represented on that kind of equal footing. Like you were saying, everyone had to yes. have... Yes. Whether it was the networks, you know, that, whether it was That was the really teams. tricky and tense, Will, because... Uh, it started with the merger at a press conference in the Essex Room, I think is a British connection to that, Essex Room of the Warwick Hotel. And all the NFL people were sitting on one side of the room, and the AFL supporters were on the other. Um, it was like you could almost hear the usher ask each person who came through the door, friend of the bride, friend of the groom. And uh, <laughs> that was the atmosphere. And my lasting memory that day was of the controversial broadcaster Howard Cosell, who felt he was acting on behalf of the American American people. And uh, he demanded that Lamar Hunt tell the truth about the steps that led to the merger. And he kind of called out that question you know, several times. American people need to know. The American people demand to know. And Hunt, who was a mild and dignified guy, actually apologized to Howard for momentarily raising his voice. And, of course, all of that was done for one purpose, and that was to get the champions of the two leagues into the same stadium. And um, once the legal and political rinkers had been smoothed out, like I said, something like 26 days remained to prepare for the championship. I, the thing that I remember most vividly in terms of my role, uh, I, I don't know if I officially was considered the manager of the game, but I... But I filled that, that cast, that role. Um, we had 90,000 seats to sell at the Coliseum and roughly three weeks to sell them in. And um, uh, I, we had a, a total of about a dozen people uh, organizing the game. And today they fly in about 150. And um, the t- every ticket price in the Coliseum, which seated 101,000, um, uh, they didn't. They, they didn't put up the seats for one of the end zones, so the capacity of that day was about ninety thousand, and every ticket was priced at twelve dollars, except the other end zone seats. I think were ten, but twelve dollars seemed like a, a really gouging kind of a price because I guess your average ticket price during the season was about five dollars or six dollars, and. Um, Roselle had a list of radio talk shows for me to go on, about 12 or 15. So my first three days there, I did nothing but hit radio shows. And um, 
and I caught hell from all the irate fans in Los Angeles who thought, you know, the 12 bucks was outrageous. And my heart really wasn't in it because I thought it was too. And Roselle called me the second day to ask me how it was going. And I said, Pete, it's not going well. I said, the callers are complaining that they can't afford to take their kids to the game because the tickets are so high. And Roselle said, um, how are you answering? And I said, well, I'm kind of agreeing with them. <laughs> he said, no, you need to tell them they can't take their kids to a Broadway musical. And this game is our Broadway musical. It was a great answer. And that's what I did the rest of the t- time I was out there. It didn't ke- catch, cut me much slack, but it got me through the, through the uh, rounds of the talk shows. It is amazing when you think about it. Twelve dollars, and that was seen yeah, as gouging. And and, yeah, if you get a ticket for less than three thousand dollars after they've gone on the secondary market, you're probably lucky. So yeah. it, it's really stunning, you, isn't you know, it? Well, the the uh, split for the teams was not based on anything, uh, not on the crowd or the revenue. It was just decided by the officials. It was fifteen thousand dollars for each winning player and seventy five hundred for each player on the losing team. And the last three years of the Super Bowl, the winning player gets over a hundred grand, and the losing player gets over fifty grand. And back then, a uh, hundred grand would probably be close to the at least half of the payroll for the teams. So that's a pretty huge difference in what's happened in the last fifty odd years. Uh, Mickey Herskowitz on organizing the first ever Super Bowl. Uh, you know, like we said, only a three or so month window, a lot that went into it. Uh, but for all the kind of hard work he did put in, it, it didn't necessarily capture the imagination, say, in the way that we're used to the Super Bowl being one of the biggest sporting events on earth. No, I mean, you know, the probably the only suitable element was that it was in the Coliseum, which was obviously the, the, the iconic stadium of the day. Um, it didn't help. I don't think that the, the two teams were from the Midwest. Um, you know, Green Bay Packers and Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, tickets were expensive. I think they were two dollars more than the NFL Championship game tickets. And and yeah, it didn't. I mean, they, they were like I said, a third of the seats were empty. I told the story about how a safe was broken into uh, with all the Chiefs tickets in, and, and the thieves only took the money, deeming that the tickets had no value. And and I guess that was right, but. You know, let's hear let's hear about that. Just how different it was from the Super Bowls of today. From from Bobby Bell, who we sat down with at Super Bowl Fifty, Will and, and chatted to him about that. He was the Hall of Fame linebacker for the for the Kansas City Chiefs. First question, then, Bobby. You're here at Super Bowl Fifty in this huge air hangar full of media and all the stuff they're doing in San Francisco. And how does this compare with Super Bowl One? And, and well, Super Bowl One. If it, <clears throat> in fact, they didn't even call it Super Bowl yeah. One. And we had no idea it was going to become something like this. And uh, the press in Super Bowl One was done Saturday before the game, and they all was uh, all the guys in swimming suits around the swimming pool. They do an interview, and a guy jump in the swimming pool, and that was it on Saturday. I nearly wore my swimming suit today. So. <laughs> Uh, you ex- translate what he just said. He said, I nearly wore my suit. <laughs> 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 Thank you. Between I, really and, uh, I got you, man, you know. It, it take me a while, to, you know, but I, I'll so tune in, you know. Tune in on him on a little bit, you know. But, you know, the thing is, uh, me and Buck Buchanan, he was playing in the game. We looked up, he was standing down on the side, and down on the sideline, looked up in the stand, 
and it was like 35,000 empty seats in there. And I said, who in the world is going to pay for $12 for a seat in the Super Bowl? You know, I think the tickets now, the face value, mine was 3000 a piece, you know. I paid more for two tickets than they paid me in the first Super Bowl. <laughs> you know, now, you know, like the week before the Super Bowl, everybody comes in here for the parties, mm. all the, you know. Look at y'all. Y'all been, y'all been down here for, what, three days? Yep. And what have you been Will, doing? Will slept last night. Huh? Partying. You been partying. <laughs> <laughs> See, that sounds like partying. You like making you go somewhere some, and party something. It was something like that, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hall of Famer Bobby Bell speaking with us on the NFL 100 show on just how different Super Bowl one was to what you expect from the razzmatazz of nowadays. Uh, as much as the public imagination wasn't captured, though, it was a, a huge event for the players involved. Yeah, I mean, for for the Chiefs, it was it was really an opportunity to do what you know the Cleveland Browns had done years before, and, and shut up all the naysayers who said that their league was was inferior. Um, and then for Green Bay, you know, because of what happened when Paul Brown's team took on the the Eagles like that twenty years previous, the the, the, the NFL didn't want a repeat of that. You know, that would have been a bit of a disaster in itself. So. So Lombardi himself, he, he took that pressure on himself. You know, Lombardi was a, was an NFL man. He 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 loved the league. He was still even after he left Green Bay involved in prior to his death in kind of league meetings and things like that. And and he really took all of that upon his own shoulders. And and it's interesting how the two teams, their approaches to the game, really differed. Um, Kansas City stayed right near Los Angeles. They arrived a week before the game. You know, they took part in media activities. They were very relaxed. Tech shrammed, had them, had them at ease, and 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 you know, Lombardi took the Packers two hours away in, into the middle of the mountains and and told them that they weren't allowed to use the swimming pool, and it was intense. It was a more intense atmosphere for certain. You know, summed up Lombardi. Now let's get an insight into that from from a Green Bay perspective, and and just what it was like building up to that game by speaking to to Boyd Dowler, a, a guy who, who wouldn't play a big part in the game, it turns out, but can, can offer some, some words on that. Just how intense was Coach Lombardi prior to that Super Bowl? Because it felt like, it felt like for him, he kind of took on the burden of that game being about the whole league, the whole NFL, and, and kind of winning that battle over the AFL and proving that they were the superior league. Was he extra intense? I know he... he he stationed you guys off two hours away from from Los Angeles in the mountains and things like that. Just, just what, what was he like during yeah. that week? Yeah, you're right, and uh, he was he was he was uptight a little bit because what he figured, what he thought, and he was right was that if we went out there and laid an egg, being the established league, he he felt that we had everything to lose. And not much to gain. Yeah. He, he actually approached it, and he didn't tell us this. He didn't come out and say, well, you know, we have to win this game or anything. He told us we will win this game, but he, he, was, he was a little bit, he was a little edgy because he, he realized one thing. He said, we were, we were carrying the whole National Football League. We were representing the whole National Football League. And, uh, we had we had to play well, and he told us quite directly and frank frankly we will we will win this game if we play 
if we play our football, if we play our football the way we can play, we will win this game. He said, I have no doubt about that. He said, so you have to go out there. Go out there and go out there and play hard and play smart and uh, everything will be fine. And he was right about that. He didn't, he didn't, uh, he didn't get so uptight that he had us on edge. I don't believe. Yeah. I only lasted, I only lasted three plays. I played three plays and hurt my shoulder. That wasn't very, that <laughs> wasn't very healthy anyway. Yeah, yeah. But I, uh, but, but I was on the sidelines feeling sorry for myself the rest of the game. And, uh, and watch, your watch, 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 Max, watch, watch Max come in and uh, do a great job. And, uh, you know, that was, uh, and that was good. And, uh, but he was, he was on edge. He was on edge all, all week long, getting ready. And uh, he had us ready. Although we didn't, we didn't start out. We didn't start out uh, real good. We were kind of, we were kind of spotty in the first half, but uh, we got turned it loose in the second half, and it was a, it all it pretty much took care of itself. And again, like I said, mentioned before, what he could tell us, he could almost tell us what was going to happen. Yeah, and we we believed him, and it, he he. It, he didn't lie to you. He didn't tell you stuff. He didn't tell you bullshit. He would uh, he would tell you what we were going to do and what we needed to do. And he didn't try to trick you. He just told he told you right straight out. This is what you got to do. And if you're not, you got to do this better. At halftime, he may say you got to do this better. He says you're going we're going to be fine. And uh, we were. And he was always that way, and I don't. He had he had a lot of confidence, or he convinced us that he did. <laughs> but he he had confidence in us, and he had confidence in the way he uh, he he taught us. There was a, there, that was a, there was a story about him reading telegrams out to the team from like George Hallis and you know people around the league who were. I mean, it's ironic George Hallis telegram and. Vince Lombardi edging him to win a football game, but but was that true that he kind of read the? Yeah, he mentioned. Yeah, he mentioned that. He said, "I've been hearing from the from from the uh, league office." He said, "I've heard from the some other coaches around the league and everything like that." And uh, you know, he said somebody I don't know whether it was Alice or Shula or who it was, but uh, he you know mentioned that uh, they they said there isn't there isn't another team that uh, that. They would. I don't know who said it, but there isn't another team that uh, in the league that I would pick besides the Packers to to represent us in uh, in this first in this first game, this first championship game. They hadn't called it the Super Bowl yet. Yeah, it was the NFL NFL championship. Came after. Yeah, AFL NFL six whatever, but they officially changed the name later. But he, uh, yeah, he, he used. He used some of that hearsay information, and uh, but he, you know, he he made he made good straight locker room talks before the games and stuff like that. But he wasn't uh, he didn't go crazy. He wasn't uh, you know he wasn't he wasn't really a cheerleader. 
Uh, Boyd Dowler speaking to us for the NFL 100 show as we're looking back on the story of, N- of, of NFL 1, of Super Bowl 1, uh, the first ever uh, game between the NFL and what is now the, the NFC and the AFC, as it were, but at the time the NFL and the AFL as the merger came. Uh, one point that was being made by Dowler then, uh, then uh, of him lasting only three plays actually ends up being pretty significant. Yeah, it does, yeah, because it affords an opportunity for Max McGee, who was who was really a, a well, not a journeyman, that's the completely wrong thing to say. He was he was basically a, a veteran at that point who was, you know, a bench warmer. And and so much so that McGee spent the previous evening having circumvented Lombardi's army of spies, um, partying with a couple of uh, air hostesses, and arrived back into his room at the point that Bart Starr, the quarterback, woke up for the game. Um, so he was hammered, essentially. Um, and then McGee gets injured, and then Dowler has to play, play in the game. And it sets up probably the best story of Super Bowl One, which is Max McGee, the, the drunk wide receiver, having 138 receiving yards and two touchdowns in the game. Um, and they needed it, you know. The, the game, certainly in the first half, was a lot closer than people anticipated. Green Bay were only 14-10 ahead, but the Chiefs were a much younger team, so there was a belief that under the heat, you know, the Packers might wilt and, the, and, and Kansas City's vibrance um, would would win the day. But, it, you know, Lombardi does what great coaches do. I mean, the, the big key to the Kansas City success in the first half were these five-man passing patterns. And the reason they were able to do that is is Lombardi would always turn blitz in a weapon for the week, so the Packers almost never blitzed. Um, and then, you know, Lombardi spots this at halftime, instructs the defensive coordinator to start blitzing, and, and the game turns completely at the, on the first series of the second half when the Packers send a blitz and and um, Len Dawson ends up throwing it throwing an interception that's returned 50 yards by Willie Wood and eventually sets up a touchdown score. And from that point, really, Green Bay never looked back. So let's hear from Dave Robinson, one of the, line black, one of the linebackers who was, who was going after the quarterback on that Blitz 3 call and, and just get his insights on, on what made Lombardi change his, change his plan. You know what happened? Let me tell you, the first half, the game was close. We went to the locker room and scored 14 to 10. They, they, they kept us in the... Uh, in the in a bad situation on the second half. And we went in, we've been trying to get the answer to get the coaches to change the defenses for us. And we got finally went in at halftime, and, uh, and, and they, we had that one player that run against us in crucial times, and they, they answered the diagram and put it on the board. And we uh, everybody told them what the men did, and they drew it up on the board, and they said, well, that's a five-man pattern. They were sending everybody out. Nobody, did, nobody was in the backfield to protect the quarterback. And and so the defensive coordinator asked us, well, what do they do when we blitz against them? And we told him, Coach, we did not blitz the entire first half. They just ignored the blitz completely. Yeah. And and uh, our defense was predicated on the fact that uh, what made, why Herb Alley was so good was because I had the underneath coverage one. I, I didn't cover it, but I shadowed the man for the first 10 yards. And Herb could lay off. After 10 yards, after 10 yards Herb could get on him. And riding, like Herbert said, riding to the goal line. And, and when they sent the fifth man out of the backfield, I had to cover somebody, and Herb was left all alone with no underneath coverage. So it was really hard on us. So what they said, so what Phil said, he said, okay, he says, the second half, every passing situation, we're going to blitz them and see what they do. So we kind of get kicked off to them. You know, there's two kickoffs in that game, too, kind of interesting. Anyway, and they got the ball, 
and they ran two they ran two running plays and they had third and eight, so it was a passing situation. And the the defense coordinator called blitz three. That means all three linebackers were coming. Yeah. And, and there's nobody back there. I had the tight end, so I was I was later because I had to jam the tight end first and let, couldn't let him off the line clean. And, and I broke through clear. And, and, and Leroy and, and Nisky were, Leroy, Kathy, and Nisky had already entered the back secondary, and I was coming. And I remember, I remember, uh, uh, Dawkins, uh, uh, his eyes, come when, when they're coming in, he, 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 they look like sausage, man. He saw three guys coming <laughs> in with nobody, nobody to block for him. And, and he threw the ball and was a wounded duck. Willie, Willie Wood intercepted and ran it down to the five yard line. They went in to score, and we went up at that point. Went up for twenty-one ten, and it was a. And then uh, every time they, every time they went in the past position, we sent one or two guys at it, and it, they had to change. I later talked to Lane Dawkins, and he said that uh, he said what happened for two weeks. They've been running those five-man patterns, you know, with nobody back there, and they all knew the three and four-man patterns how to run them. But what happened? They hadn't run them for two weeks. And they lost the timing. When they started trying to call him in the second half, the timing wasn't there. Yeah. So they made him look really bad. That's why they, they didn't score in the second half. It just completely disrupted their offense when, when we started blitzing. Uh, before that game, he told me, he said, they had scattered us, and we only blitzed an average of three times in the whole game. And every game, we averaged three blitzes a game. We didn't blitz very often. So what they figured was, the three times we blitzed, they would either throw the ball away or let him even take a sack. They wouldn't worry about it. Yeah, and when, when they saw us coming every play, they had to change up, and, and, they, and they couldn't adapt. They couldn't adapt in the middle of the third quarter. They just couldn't do it. And then, so they were like they were like fish out of water the second half, and we just ran over them. We, the second half score was twenty five to nothing. Yeah. So, Sherry, the rest, as they say, is history. Green Bay go on to win thirty five ten. What happens after the game? Yeah, I mean, not long after, I think it's the next day, Lombardi goes into a league meeting and gets a, a standing ovation. Like it, it, this was massive for the for the NFL. You know, we had Dowler reference about the owners sending telegrams to Lombardi of how important it was, and 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 I think also just after the game, he, he upset Tex Schramm's counterpart by suggesting that the Chiefs weren't as good as any NFL teams, and and that isn't true. I mean, the the AFL would eventually prove that. Um, but it just shows kind of the feeling that still existed between the leagues. But I guess the most significant thing that happens after that is what the Super Bowl becomes. I mean, this is a very unfitting first edition of, of what we now know as the, the biggest annual sporting event in the world. Um, and and it becomes the Super Bowl. You know, it was called the AFL-NFL Championship game before this. Before this, and it, and it wasn't until a couple of years later that its actual name was was formalised, you know, I don't know how many people know this, but it, it derived it Super from... Super Bowl three. Yeah, I think it was officially. It might have been four, actually, but, yeah, it was around that time. But, you know, it's an interesting story how it comes about. They, they tossed around a lot of ideas, but it eventually becomes called this because Lamar Hunt's kids, so Clark Hunt, I assume, was one of them, would play with a toy called a Super Bowl, and and that, that prompted Hunt to suggest that and Pete Rosell hated it I mean he absolutely hated the name but it just grew legs of its own so the media started referring to it as the Super Bowl from the first edition and gradually they eventually have to adopt it because everybody calls it the Super Bowl but yeah that's, that's how probably the most iconic name of a, of a single sporting event came to, came to be Incredible. Uh, wonderful stuff, as always, Matt Sherry. We should also make a mention uh, after last week's show and, and kind of 
uh, amazing how they kind of worked out. But we talked about uh, last week when we were talking about the Oakland Raiders uh, about um, uh, about Willie Brown and that incredibly famous uh, interception return and, and the, the NFL films moment. Uh, Willie Brown sadly passing away earlier this week. A true proper Hall of Fame. I know you, if you're in the Hall of Fame, you're in the Hall of Fame. But we're talking about a guy who was a four-time All-Pro, a five-time All-Star in the AFL, a three-time Super Bowl champion, an AFL champion, a, a member of the All-70s, a member of the all-time AFL team. So, uh, you know, a guy who really revolutionized how the, the, the kind of defensive backfield was played. And so, obviously, sad news to see him pass away this week. And, and if you can, go back and listen. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to, to last week where we talk about that game and that play but also just go and seek it out because it's on youtube and it's absolutely brilliant yeah absolutely is it's a it's just it's an amazing piece of footage even looking back now i mean it's still as good as anything that, that any other league would put together now i mean nfl films are, are fantastic well like we had this past week did you see the Corderell patterson uh kickoff return where they use the sky cam for yeah. it in the and like you're talking about obviously technology has got us so far that you can do something as ridiculous and incredible as that but it is amazing that we we just did a, a world where it's still the nfl who are using it in the way that that makes it look so epic and so brilliant so yeah definitely worth going back and checking and, 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 and a nod to the, the to the magazine that is out in two days time uh I visited NFL Films a couple of months ago and have written a, a, a piece on the history, the building that they, that they operate out of and, and everything NFL Films in the next issue. So, so people, please check that out. Beautiful stuff. We'll have a, a preview show for the weekend coming out tomorrow and we'll uh, very briefly look back on Thursday Night Football as well. Unless it ends up being a barnstormer, obviously. Uh, I'm not sure I see it on paper, but there we go. Um, I did see a, a wonderful as a show that loves a good uh, loves a good stat though. If people hear this before Sunday, and they probably have seen Adam Schefter tweet it. When these two teams face off tonight in Washington and the Vikings, the last two time these two teams faced in Week Ten of 2017, Kirk Cousins was Washington's QB and Case Keenum was Minnesota's QB. Hmm. The That's last, cool. The last time starting QBs faced each other for both teams in the same matchup, as in it flipped was back it for with Norm Sneed and Sonny Jurgensen for the Eagles and for Washington in 1963 and 1964. So I just thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that's exceptional. Excellent work. Right. Good stuff, Matthew. As always, what have we got coming up for next week's show? Do we know yet? Um, I can find out. Let's just have a look, shall we? I can't, can't even remember. Why do you? Why do you never have this ready to go? It's it's becoming like almost a thing that I have to do it like this because it's just the way I operate. Uh, we're going to do Chiefs again next week, actually Super Bowl four. Um, so it'll follow on really nicely because we end this show talking about the AFL being down and out, but we can we can talk about the revival and the significance of Super Bowl four, which was significant for a multitude of reasons. Wonderful stuff. Good work, Matt Sherry. Obviously, keep checking us out at UK Gridiron on Twitter, at Gridiron on Instagram. Uh, sorry, the other way around, at UK Gridiron on Instagram, at Gridiron on Twitter. And uh, we'll have lots of content for you from this weekend's game in London between the Bengals and Rams. Uh, and then, of course, we're back tomorrow with the big weekend preview. Thank you so much for listening. This has been The Gridiron Show.